Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway, and in these podcasts, we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already, with the limited powers we do have, and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved, and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in the second of two special episodes, we're looking back at some key messages and highlights from a fantastic range of guests. So let's start this time with former no voter, Michael Sturrock. Having voted no in 2014, what were the factors that made you feel that you wanted to vote that way? Well, I mean, be, being in France at the time is sort of the, the prime one. Um, I was there on an Erasmus um, scholarship. Um, I was, in essence, being paid by the European Union to be there. They were funding my studies. They were giving me a stipend to live. I was able to live and work in the European Union. And it kind of comes back really to that tweet that we had by Better Together. What is the way of losing your EU membership voting yes? And I don't think that was unfair to to draw that conclusion. You know, there's certainly more argument to it now. <laughs> As we know, it's gone the other way, of course. Yeah. But to me, that was the most logical thing. We had European Union membership, being part of the UK, going, uh, going, uh, becoming independent. We probably would have joined the EU at some stage later on, but there would have been a step-by-step -step thing to get to that as well. So for me, it was something not losing what you already had, in essence. So that was the kind of main driver. I just didn't want to lose the benefits. As we know, the European Union benefits are one of the main things that drive support for independence now. So those are the really fundamental things that I thought, yeah, this is a great, valuable thing to have, European Union membership, and I don't really want to give that up. And having had that uh, feeling that this was a really valuable thing, when the No campaign put forward that message, as they very much did during the campaign, for you that was the the real clincher. Were there any other factors that, uh, that were sitting around the back of your mind at that time? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we'd had maybe, well, I suppose it was four years or three and a bit years of the um, Tory Lib Dem coalition at that point, And we didn't really see, we knew sort of austerity as a, a theory, um, but the impact of public sector funding cuts, uh, the impact on the, the poorest and most vulnerable in society hadn't really come to bear yet. And as that has happened and, you know, we, we see the state of the NHS trying to deal with coronavirus in the, in the first instance and the UK government realising, oh, all this money we've, we've been cutting over the past decade, we have to put, put it back in to make it fit for purpose. Um, homelessness going up by 141%, people on benefits having their uh, being pushed into poverty, um, poverty, going, poverty rates themselves going up, poverty in children rates going up. It is really um, such a sorry state of affairs we have in the UK at the moment. And, you know, that, that is something that's really changed my mind about our attitudes uh, towards the most vulnerable in society. And, and do you remember that, that kind of moment or that period of time when you made that change from saying, no, I'm a no voter, I believe I did the right thing, to yeah. actually now I've reconsidered this and I can, I can see there's a different answer to the, the issues that I have? Well, it, it was pretty instant, actually. Um, I, I, I guess I was a soft no to begin with. You know, if you look at the, the sort of criteria of people, I was young, um, I was internationalist. Um, you know, I, I should have been in the yes camp. Most people my age were in the in the yes camp, but it was essentially the morning of the Brexit vote. Um, I was 
uh, in Edinburgh and actually I was going to the Highland show and then we, we had all these facts about the European Union that were coming out far too late to change the change the result but 50% of farming income for example was coming from the European Union we we're off to the Highland show to um, see what was uh, the agriculture sector and, and um, people were just absolutely demoralized and I say that with, with farming, fam, farming family as well um, so yeah it was pretty instantaneous I thought well the only way that I can I see my values, the values that I had in the 2014 referendum, pro-European, internationalist, um, liberal. Um, I don't see how they can be achieved while part of the UK. So in essence, you know, my view didn't really change. My interpretation of what needed to be done to get there became markedly different. Michael Sturrock there on why he voted no in 2014 and what's changed for him since then. If the next referendum is to be won, we'll need to convince more so-called soft no voters like Michael to change their minds. This is what he had to say about how we engage with them. We, we can't take this better approach to people. It's not it's not going to work. And, you know, our, our vision of independence is one that is positive. Uh, it is welcoming. It is showing um empathy and um, collective ambition um, and I don't think it is consistent with that to be angry and um, I, I guess you, yeah, you can't imagine may have made mistakes in the past yeah, we're recording this during Wimbledon obviously Andy Murray's mm. gone out unfortunately but played some great tennis while he was there but you can't imagine somebody like Andy Murray speaking to someone and then telling him that they didn't used to be a fan but now they are and him turning around and going, well, you're stupid in the first place. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you're, you're, What you want to do is get people on uh, board. And, you know, all these tools and other things are really helpful. But if the attitude isn't there that says we've got to really welcome people into the uh, this direction now, it's going to be counterproductive. Yeah, and also, you know, when to try and win this referendum as well, we have to understand the reasons why they voted no too. So if we say, oh, you're, you're so stupid, then just dismiss what the reasons were that they voted no in the first place, then, we, um, then we're just not going to understand what the barriers are for other people to come from no to yes as well. So, you know, the, the, as I say, there's really sort of an active listening role that we yeah. have to understand there. And then, you know, another, another really helpful tool, and I think is, is you know, maybe sort of indicative of, of the, the um, Twitter sphere of just people sort of being hyperbolic about their understanding of e of others argument oh so you think that xyz and yeah. just sort of saying something completely ridiculous and hyperbolic one of the tools that i think is really helpful is to try and repeat someone's argument or concerns back to them in a mm -hmm. way that they would think is fair mm -hmm. so if you can capture their argument and um and, and you know discuss it in a way that they recognize and they say yes you've you understood this issue then you can begin to engage constructively from there and again sort of being active and listening and not saying oh but, 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 but every time they say something you mm -hmm. think you disagree with but you know taking it all in that's going to be so important for people to uh, to engage with this debate and you know we had we did have a really good debate in 2014 and I think we need to we're in danger with this sort of current political uh, current Twitter narrative and the way debates have become so divisive, particularly in Scotland, over contentious issues. We're in danger of independence becoming that as well. And, and of I course, think we just need a bit of. And as you said, that attitude where you know people find things to disagree about things on which they agree, um, you know, is is just food, meat and drink to the uh, uh, to the campaign that would see you not having independence that would want to to stop um, independence yeah. in its tracks, isn't it? Yep, yeah, totally, and I think. You know, if we have if we have a negative uh, argument and 
we've seen the the many in the in the no camp not not entirely but many in the no camp are already trying to do this sort of negative campaigning project fear as some might say um i think it's a bit more um you know, nefarious and we need to be a bit more um recognizing what they're actually trying to do um but some people are taking that approach already and insofar as the debate is negative we're playing into their hands because mm-hmm. that's the that's the line that they are pursuing so if we, if we understand this whole thing is negative then that's going to play into well, their uh, hands. Michael Sturrock there from one Michael to another now as the director of the SNP's independence unit and party president Mike Russell continues on those thoughts about what to expect from the no campaign this time around. I mean, I think, it, I think they will seek to undermine the national movement every way they can. And they are, you know, they are trolling us, they are gaslighting us. I mean, Gove's, you know, constant refusals is designed to set us against each other uh, and to encourage people to say, oh, this is awful, we must now go, and, and to misstep us and to make us misstep. This is happening all the time. We need to be on our guard against that and not be provoked into actions that are wrong and doing things at the wrong time. It, you know, they will be very sleekish in what they do. That's how they are. And that work has already started. There is an advantage in us in being much, much more straightforward and, and very straightforward with, with our uh, Scottish voters with each other. And I think, you know, I, I think that has its effect. Uh, I think that if you are more honest and straightforward, it comes across. Remember, classically, in campaigning, two negative campaigns, it is a negative, the most negative that will win. But if a negative campaign is set against a positive campaign, it is usually the positive campaign. So we should remember that. Is there a new killer argument against independence? No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I, I think that they will centre on <coughs> what we can afford, whether we are going to have currency or cowrie shells. You know, apparently, uniquely in the world, we'd be the only people who didn't have a currency. There are issues such as the borders that they will exploit. But you know, we need to hold up to the people of Scotland mm. that vision of a better society. It doesn't have to be as it is now. And we have to persuade people of that on the positive. And I think we can do that. And, and what do you think about their, the, you know, for example, you mentioned the Section 30 argument there just now. Do you, how strong do you think they are in terms of uh, stopping? That just can't last forever. I mean, you know, no, 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 nothing lasts forever in politics. And that won't last forever. But equally, you know, we have, we have stated our position on what we are going to do next as a, as a party and as a government, which is very clear. You know, the bill will be brought into the parliament at the time of the parliament's choosing. That's not for me. I'm not a member of it. I'm not a member of the bill. That will be that will be for you know the first minister and the cabinet, uh, working with the Green Party, I'm sure, to bring in the bill at the time they think is appropriate and to set a date. Um, and that's that's absolutely fine. Then, once that bill is passed and the arrangements are being put in place, a section 30 will have been will have been sought. If the UK government, however, refused that and refused to accept that there should be a referendum, then it will undoubtedly end up in court. And it will be the UK government that attempts to stop the people of Scotland mm-hmm. from saying what they wish to do. Uh, and that is that would be, I think, pretty remarkable and very much remarked on uh, else in this country and elsewhere. But that's what would happen. It would become that dispute. Now, what will happen as a result of that, I do not know. But, you know, I hope better sense will prevail and I think, you know, confronted with a bill that has a majority in the Scottish Parliament, two parties have had a personal commitment to that bill, uh, and, you know, and has been endorsed by the people, you know, it is the people that matter. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that would have its effect. But, you know, we will wait and see. But that is the intention, and that is what should happen. 
And what, what, what do you make of the, the constant attempts to deny democracy? You're talking about the majority in the Scottish Parliament there. I've heard the, the Tories in Scotland say, you know, you, you, the SNP didn't win a majority, that's therefore there's no right to... They're totally ignoring the, the fact that the Parliament has a majority. What do you think of the, those continual arguments trying to deny democracy? It's just pathetic nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense when it comes from, you know, that ridiculous figure, Alistair Jack, you know, who is just, he's, he's like something out of 1950s politics, you know, and he thinks that he can lecture people on this. It's ridiculous nonsense. Mm-hmm. And we should have no time for it. And it's nonsense when it comes from unionist, obsessive unionist journalists like Ian Martin, you see it all the time. It's just nonsense. And I mean, and we should treat it as nonsense. We, we, you know, we are the government of Scotland in a parliament elected to do that. Uh, we are, you know, there is a majority in that parliament, an even bigger majority for a referendum bill. Let's get real. That's real. It's not this artificial flummery that's coming from stuffed shirts like, um, like Alistair Jack. That was Mike Russell. During that clip, Mike touched briefly on an issue which played a huge part in the 2014 referendum, that of which currency would an independent Scotland use. Well, I spoke to Alison Theolis MP and former MP Roger Mullen about the very same issue. I think the currency debate is largely nonsense. (laughs) I think we are partly responsible for that because of, I would have to say, a pretty inept way in which we raised and dealt with the currency issue, such as it was back in 2014. I mean, uh, let me uh, uh, put it by telling a wee story about myself, first of all. Before I became an MP, I ran a number of very small consultancy and research companies. We did a lot of our work overseas. Uh, Because of that, Operating from a small office in Fife, I operated our companies in three different currencies. We used sterling when we were trading and getting contracts within the UK. When we were operating uh, laterally with EU countries, such as in Southern Ireland, we operated through euros. And because of all the work I did with the United Nations and the World Bank for many years, had to operate in uh, the dollar. Now, what this would be called in the jargon is I was operating with parallel currencies. There are parallel countries, uh, currencies going on all over the place. When people talk about are we going to have use sterling or using a Scots pound, it's kind of missing the point. We don't just use one currency at the moment. There are multiple currencies going on that are interchangeable in many different ways. So the issue is what are the circumstances that we are going to face come independence? Well, my view is a very simple one. We don't know precisely what the state of the world is going to be in in the day come independence. We don't know precisely what the challenges and what the opportunities are that we are going to face. And therefore, from my standpoint, the sensible thing is to leave the timing of any alternative currency choice to an independent Scottish government. I don't have the brilliance, I don't know anybody in the world that has the brilliance to know precisely what our circumstances going to be when we're independent in a few years' time and what the best judgment is going to be of the timing of introducing, if we want to introduce, our own currency. Well, of course, Alison, hundreds of 
countries have become independent in the past couple of centuries and and even from the UK I think there's something like 60 in the the, the past hundred years have become independent it, all of them have somehow managed to move on and you know develop a currency option for them it, what, what's your thoughts on the whole currency issue what do you what do you think is 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 important there yeah I think it's it's how you transition to um to that currency or um whatever option the an independent Scottish government uh, would choose to adopt. I think Roger's right on that front. We can't be too prescriptive at this stage of what that will exactly look like. Um, we can set out a range of options. We can look at what other countries around the world have gone because it's not uncharted territory. Other countries have done this and it's, uh, again, more common than people would, would really give it countenance for us. But it's very common that countries have become independent, have developed their own um, currency, have developed their own strategies and central banks and other things that go with it. Um, so, again, that's something that... Yeah we would look to do, maybe we can set out a kind of process for that happening. But at this stage, we don't yet have uh, all of those uh, things in front of us. We are not yet independent. We have to win that argument first yeah. on independence with a lot of people and say, well, you know, if I was to tell you right here today on your doorstep, this is exactly how it's going to be. You know, you're going to come back in, in five, ten years and call me a liar. I will tell you what I think will happen and what the process would be. Um, but if you're expecting absolute facts, that's something that nobody can tell you. Um, in any circumstance, on either side of the argument, of course, because the world I, is changing so much now. I, I, and I, I would add to this: there are far more important economic questions that need to be addressed than currency. For example, look at the global crisis at the moment in climate change, and the need we have to invest and to do things related to climate change. Climate change is not going to be affected one way or the other by the choice of currency. Inequality in society is not going to be addressed by, the, by uh, whichever currency uh, uh, we choose. There are so many big questions of need in our society. Our demographic challenge is not going to be addressed by a choice of currency. These are all, in the longer term, far more substantial questions and issues that need to be addressed. Alison is absolutely right. Every country in the world uses currency. The, the day of the uh, vote on independence, um, you don't suddenly have a new currency or, or anything like that. You move to uh, where you need to go based on the needs of the, the country going forward. Thanks to Alison Thewlis MP and Roger Mullen. One of Roger's final points there was about climate change, the biggest issue we face as individual nations and indeed as a planet. Deirdre Brock MP is the SNP's COP26 spokesperson, so I wanted to find out her thoughts on the UK government's attitude to the upcoming COP26 conference in Glasgow and what Scotland's ambitions are to combat climate change after independence. I, I would have to say this, I, I suppose, but I would think we can do so much better than the current, certainly the current Westminster government is doing. For example, we would have responsibility for energy, so we could make our own decisions, say, about continuing uh, to support nuclear, as the Westminster government does, uh, over green renewables, uh, and we could decide whether we think that's the best use of public money. Um, so uh, an example of that, I suppose, that's particularly pertinent, and it's one certainly our energy spokesperson, Alan Brown, I know, is, is uh, speaks of often, is the underinvestment from the UK government in marine energy, um, particularly you know wind and wind and wave power? There's such huge potential for this to be a really important source of reliable power for Scotland and, and ultimately for an export market too um, when we're independent. 
we're on the cusp of this being commercially viable. It's tantalizingly close. And yet the UK government continues to show very little interest or support for it uh, while it continues to back nuclear power. Now, I'm really confident that we, as Denmark did uh, decades ago with its forward-thinking investments into wind power, um, could become world leaders here with the tremendous skills and technologies we've developed, the, the, the great advantages uh, around our coastlines. Um, but those skills and technologies that uh, and, and this whole um, development could help considerably with the just transition of jobs from oil and gas as we reduce our reliance on fossil fuel. I, I know you've I know you've raised a lot of these issues in Parliament about what you would like to see accelerated by Westminster and uh, mm. you know particularly some of the things that you view as the real you know kind of feelings uh, that have happened there. I just want to play a wee clip of a response that you gave to a statement in Parliament um, about some of these issues to the uh, the, the COP uh, president as it is called uh, Alex Sharma. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, there's no joined-up thinking on any issue with this government, but we would all have hoped for some cross-department thinking on this issue at least. We are, as usual, disappointed with even the Green Homes Grant gone after just a few months. So much for building back better. There's increasing concern voiced internationally, too, about the UK government's lack of progress domestically on environmental commitments. So will he show some real leadership then and commit today to start seriously lobbying his government colleagues to join up the dots and start delivering so we can look forward to environmentally sound investment, renewed support for a comprehensive charging framework for electric vehicles, real investment in hydrogen technology and marine energy, support for housing improvements and so on. Will he do that or is he happy to leave us all embarrassed to be hoping, uh, hosting COP26 while the UK seems to be striding off in the opposite direction? I'll just say to the, the Honourable Lady that the role of the, the COP presidency is to ensure that we are working uh, with all uh, 197 parties to ensure that we are making progress on keeping the 1.5 degrees uh, within reach. Uh, of course, the UK, like any other country, needs to see what more we can do. But I'll just say I hope she will acknowledge that we are seen as a leader in the world. Uh, and indeed, uh, since 2000, as I said, we've decarbonised our economy faster than any other G20 nation. Well, Deirdre, we've just heard the uh, COP president there telling you that uh, the UK is a, a world leader. What are, what are your thoughts on that answer that he gave to you? <clears throat> well, um, I think the president-designate is is <laughs> doing his best, um, I suppose, uh, under circumstances that... Um, I, mean, I have to say I'm very disappointed in the UK government's um, response to COP26. I mean, the... the this Tory government likes to think it's world beating at everything, but well, there's a lot. There's, in, there's a lot around actions as opposed to promises, isn't there? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, look at look at the environment bill, for example. There was a commitment to that environment bill in the early days of the Cameron uh, Lib Dem government, and it's so it's taken nearly ten years to get that environment bill nearly at the point of passing in the House. So uh, it, it comes back for its third reading next week. Um, and, and any, you know, regardless of the amount of time they've had to work on it, um, many environmental groups see its commitments as lacking substance and, and uh, its aims as being really woolly. The hosting of COP26 is a huge responsibility for any country. I mean, look how hard France worked to achieve what was a very successful Paris COP. 
Um, and that surely, to my mind, means that firstly, they should be out there working the diplomatic resources that they have as hard as they possibly can. And I'm not seeing that from the president designate. But it also surely means that the country should be mindful of encouraging others to sign up to commitments, but then not going close to setting an example itself. So the UK government appeared content with the opening of a, a new coal mine until there were national Indeed. and mm. international outcries. Mm. Um, a, a new coal mine in the UK, uh, uh, they've seemed to have backed down on that for the moment, but frankly, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it suddenly appears as an option after COP's been and gone. What do you think are the Scottish government's biggest successes or, or greatest actions in terms of taking this issue forward? Oh, look, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I do get a little bit concerned about sort of folk banging on about, you know, us being world leading in legislation and targets. We are pretty good in Scotland, um, but obviously climate change is a global thing and we all have to work together on it. Um, I think I think in a way what Scotland is missing most is um, in not having our own voice to take part in the discussions around the world uh, about what needs done. So, you know, we won't have a place at the discussions um, in uh, November at COP26. It will be... Um, yeah, that's despite, that, that, that's despite yeah. declaring a climate emergency ahead of anyone else. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah and, I know. And, and despite... You know, then, we were the first person... Sorry. Yeah, yeah carry on. No, no, first, uh, first uh, country in the UK to declare a climate emergency... Um, we've got the, some of the most ambitious legislative emissions reductions targets in the world. We've uh, halved our greenhouse gas emissions since 1990. Um, apparently, we're uh, second only to Sweden in terms of our emissions reductions there. We're enormous. We are actually world-renowned. We are world-renowned for having underpinned our net zero targets with a legislative commitment. It's not the same as having a woolly aim. This is actually something that has been underpinned by legislation. It's a really important development. Um, and, it, you know, we have uh, got a legislative commitment to a just transition, which mm -hmm. was, again, yeah. you know, a world-leading a world-leading um, world um, development. And, you know, our aim is to ensure that no one is left behind. We've seen in the last manifesto for the SNP before this 2021 election, you know, further emit, uh, commitments of, of extra money to go into that transition fund because that is so important mm -hmm. for, yeah. for us in Scotland particularly. And all this is, um, in, and all this is in the background of working in a, a fixed budget that we have, you know, we can't, we can't borrow, we don't have the borrowing power, so we have to work within a fixed budget. A really key thing is, is control of energy policy because, you know, we could choose not to invest in nuclear. We could choose to invest in fantastic technologies like uh, wave and wind and further invest in nature-based uh, solutions because uh, I'm a big fan of those. I think sometimes we overlook those in favour of, you know, zhuzhi kind of newer technology yeah. like um, direct air carbon capture, which is still in its early days of development, which seems to capture a lot of attention from um politicians and journalists i mean i know dominic cummings was a big fan of that and, and was lobbying hard to try and get a lot of extra investment into it but you know there are nature-based solutions peat bog restoration tree planting working with our farmers to um make their uh, you know make agricultural activities um far more carbon retentive i mean there are many options other than just throwing 
not to say that we shouldn't be looking at it, but... But through money, I nuclear think, and, yeah. uh, and other technologies. Yeah. And of course, yeah, if, if, we, if yeah. we had the powers in Scotland, we could make a menu of choices. So we could do some on, you know, we could, we could pursue carbon capture, we could pursue these nature-based solutions, and we could choose yeah. what is right for the, the, the mix that we have. Deirdre, let yeah, me, and base it on the conditions of the country, you know, indeed. our country. You know, look at hydro pump storage. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that we've got enormous potential for in Scotland. Um, but, you know, again, there seems to be a blockage from uh, the UK government. I mean, obviously, carbon capture storage is is very much to the, the forefront again. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, there were the two competitions from Westminster uh, trying to find a, 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 a proposal that, um, that has these sort of carbon capture storage technology competitions mm-hmm. yeah. and and it, was, it cost something like 140 million pounds each time um the st fergus plant uh, and that area were were looking like they were going to win and and then the whole thing got pulled That's and right, now yeah. <clears throat> now things have developed sufficiently down in uh in uh, uh, ports in england that we're operating in in real sort of competition with them mm-hmm. for the next announcement of funding, um, mm-hmm. whenever that. When we could be pressing ahead. When we could be pressing ahead with these things. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these special episodes of Scotland's Choice Highlights. My thanks to all of my guests for taking part, and once again to you for listening. Don't forget, you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.